0: And the edge of the world, UFAMet presents Nightdrift with Jim Perry.
1: Good evening. You're listening to Nightdrift, presented by UFAMet, and I'm Jim Perry. Coming to you tonight from my home studio in the hinterlands of the Oregon coast, it's a podcast-exclusive edition of this show. I'm chatting with guest Brent Rains on his book, John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and The Ongoing Mysteries. We'll dive deep into the world of John Keel. But also, Brent is a writer and investigator of the strange in his own right. We'll talk about his experiences in the field. Brent is one of these guys that was really active in the early 1970s amidst alternative ideas presented by Keel, Valet steiger and as brent mentions less often remarked ramona clark brent has since wrote several books himself he's a keelian a Fordian, a believer in the highest range and the possibility all of this is connected in some mysterious way this is a wonderful expansive deep conversation with someone who was out there doing the real work during a very important time of discovery and experimentation now I'll warn you as the conversation goes on, we sink into some stuff the Kiel fans will really love, but it may be a little much for those who are not so familiar with his work or the ufology scene in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So just a heads up, if you feel a little lost, it's not you. We just go really deep. Before all that, a quick note, a new edition of you Met drops this Thursday, May 12th on the podcast feed. It's another feature on a listener. It's deep. It's weird. It's a personal story that I think so many of us can relate to. And your story can be featured as well. Just email me at jim at Now Coming up after this, Ultra Terrestrials, Mothmen, The Super Spectrum, Guest Brent Rains on John Keel, and more.
3: people think in terms of contactees, people who talk to the flying saucer beings and get a message for the good of mankind, but we we have many people who just simply report that they've seen the creatures, uh, that the creatures jumped into the craft and flew off, and that's all, and we call them contactors, and they're all over the country. Everywhere I go, people tell me these stories. When I was traveling through Virginia and West Virginia and Ohio, I'd be sitting in a restaurant having coffee, and I'm rather conspicuous, and in a small town, everyone knows a stranger anyway, and farmers and people would come up to me very shyly, and they would ask me if I was the fellow who was searching for flying saucers, and then they'd sit down and they'd say, something happened to me last week or last month, and I've been kind of afraid to tell anybody about it, But maybe you know something about this and you can help us, and then they'd tell me the wildest damn stories, wilder than anything in the literature. For example, cattle stealing, I've heard these stories in every state, that the farmers see these things come down in their fields and take away a cow or two. Now You're all familiar probably with the classic story of 1896 where a farmer named Alexander Hamilton signed an affidavit that this happened to him. Since then we've had such cases in France and in California and now we're having it uh, apparently an epidemic of it, but most of these people are not not coming forward with these stories because they don't know who to tell. And when I'm in the area they usually tell me, or some of them do anyway
1: welcome back to night drift I'm Jim Perry that was John Keel 1966 you may know him from his book the mothman prophecies maybe you dabbled in operation Trojan horse or the 8th tower he wrote a lot a lot of books Even more articles, newsletters, pamphlets, scripts, and letters. Keel was in correspondence with a lot of other researchers, writers, and enthusiasts. One of them happens to be our guest tonight, Brent Raines. At the time of that recording, he was a plucky teenager, falling quickly into love with the unknown, and the life he saw guys like John Keel leading. Full of adventure, endless nights of looking for shadows and empty spaces and moonlit woodlands. Our guest, Brent Raines, has been immersed in the field of ufology for 55 years, in the beginning, the then 14 year old ufologist who had just consumed the then bestseller Flying Saucers Serious Business by Frank Edwards was focused solely on the mainstream's nuts and bolts extraterrestrial theory as an explanation for this enigma. With great enthusiasm, he began corresponding with fellow ufologists across the country. In 1969, he was a member of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization out in Tucson, Arizona, and served on the board of a Florida publication called Saucer Scoop as a representative from the state of Maine, where Brent was born and raised. It was while he acted in that capacity with Scoop that he was reading articles by a New York researcher journalist named John A. Keel. He was becoming quite recognized and prominent in the UFO field because of his alternative theories and perspectives on the UFO matter. By October 1969, Brent had begun corresponding with John, the man who turned Brent's UFO world topsy-turvy. To make a long story short, many years later, Brent decided to write a book that revolved around John. Some thought it was going to be strictly a biographical book about him. However, it was only partly that. The book also contains interviews with others in the field who had met and been influenced by him, his ideas and research, including himself, who made it a point of traveling around from state to state personally interviewing researchers and witnesses on his own book in the 1970s, as John had done in the 60s. John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and The Ongoing Mysteries, published July 2019 is the name of the book, which is available on Amazon, John was quite controversial in ufology as his alternative thinking leaned towards what we like to call an ultra-terrestrial theory, as opposed to an extraterrestrial one, implying that instead of being from outer space, this phenomenon was originating lightly from perhaps a parallel world from the Earth itself. He said he was presenting a simplified layman's version of quantum physics for his readers, nicknaming it a kind of super-spectrum embedded within the known electromagnetic spectrum. He felt ufology would have been better served as a branch of parapsychology than one entangled in the nuts and bolts E.T. belief system alone. Brent is also the author of Visitors from Hidden Realms and on the Edge of Reality, He's the editor of the monthly online magazine, Alternate Perceptions, which began as a small print newsletter back in 1985, at first called Para-Ufology Forum. Hello, Brent. Hi, Jim. How are you? Hey. I'm so glad you were able to connect, my friend. So, uh, first of all, where are you you coming to us from tonight?
2: I uh, am in central, south-central Tennessee. I'm in a little small community known as Waynesboro. I'm about uh, 90 miles south, a little bit uh, southwest of uh, Nashville.
1: Oh, very good. Well, that whole area, I know from experience, is chock full of high strangeness.
2: Well, actually, I was born and raised in the state of Maine. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, we, we've we had quite a bit of anomalous activity. I mean, I guess every state does, really. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah it was actually you know, um, I traveled across the United States uh, going from you know, did my research first, and and Tennessee uh, did have uh, some some reports. Uh, uh, the lady I'm married to now, my wife is uh, she's always lived in Tennessee, and she had sent me clippings about UFOs, and I came here in 1975. And again in 1976, and again 1977. At which point we got married, and I stayed. But you know, she had—that's uh... <laughs> great. <laughs> and you know, I've been to a lot of other, a lot of other places. But she had seen a uh, back in the round seventy-three, I guess. Uh, she and some people next door—they were young, uh, you know, people uh, late teens, early twenties, and. They were just out uh, talking outside in the front of this house, and it was, you know, nighttime. And my wife says that uh, this big round object, bigger than the full moon, and uh, I got excited. I said, bigger than the full moon, and that's pretty big, was yes. coming down, straight down from overhead, and she she called everyone's attention to it. And pointed, you know, a finger up at it to let him know where it was. At which point, she said, it "Immediately reversed direction and went straight back up and disappeared." Wow. So, um, you know, if she hadn't uh, noticed it coming, who knows what would have transpired <laughs> next? Uh, but anyway, it was, uh, you know, she was interested in, in the subject. Uh, we corresponded, and and um, you know, in 1975, I. I hit the road for just about almost the entire summer of mm. 75, uh, and I went uh, from Maine to Florida and hit a lot of different states on, on the way, um, and interviewed a wide variety of researchers and experiencers, and uh, I essentially was inspired by, by John Keel, a journalist from New York who back in 1966 did essentially the, the same thing, you know. he. <laughs> Uh, got really interested in the UFO phenomenon and uh, uh, went through about 20 states. He he investigated full time and and uh, kind of what I tried to do then.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, and so that's how it began. I mean, I I uh, got interested the really back in late '66. I read Frank Edwards' Flying Saucers Serious Business, mm. and uh, you know I thought, well, it's sounds like this, you know, you got police officers and pilots and all these responsible citizens, they're seeing something, you know, and, and right. uh, of course, the, the take that, you know, Frank Edwards, as many people in mainstream ufology took, was nuts and bolts, extraterrestrial visitors, and so I thought, okay, yeah, cool, um, then I, I started uh, about the first month of 1967, I didn't know it, but what I became was known as a ufologist, which I understand a, a Canadian researcher named Jean. Let's see, no, Well, anyway, he edited a magazine called uh, "Sauce of Space and Science." Um, oh my goodness, that's what happens when you get older. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, there's a lot of names well, out Gene, there.
2: Jean Duplanter, that was his name. He's he passed on a, about a year or two ago. Mm. But he had a fine magazine at the time and. I started, uh, as a teenager, a little mimeographed uh, magazine called Scientific Sauceritis Review. <laughs> and uh, Sauceritis, not saucer writers, but sauceritis, like it was a disease. <laughs> I had, you know, I was going through newspaper files, and there was a story, some psychologist, I believe, uh, was quoted saying he thought it was, you know, all these people seeing saucers, I think this was back in the 1940s, they must be suffering some kind of mental problem, like you know, some kind of sauceritis, something, you know, because you know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that's going to be in my magazine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's very apt, isn't it? I think uh, a lot of us are still suffering from this uh, this strange disease for sure. Um, you you also shared with me a newspaper a newspaper clipping, October twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one. It's you at nineteen years old. Reading at the time a brand new John Keel book called Our Haunted Planet. Tell it's a great photo, and I'm and I'd love to share it if you give me permission. Um, tell me what was oh, happening cool. in this photo, and and what was that
2: story about? Well, I was hoping to, um, in a few months at the time that was written, to uh, you know, make my cross country trip. You know, uh, yeah. that I just mentioned I did in 1975. But the problem was that. I got, uh, you know, it was during the Vietnam War and I got drafted into the military. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uncle Uncle Sam had other plans. Right. Um, So I had to kind of put it on the back burner, but, you know, it allowed me time to save up some money and really go at it later. But meanwhile, while I was in the Navy, um, I ended up in, you know, some places where I really... um, had an advantage. I, I was actually able to, to uh, launch on some really cool investigations. Uh, there mm-hmm. was, uh, before I had gone to the Navy, there was a woman I had corresponded with. Uh, her uh, PO box was in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. And she had had a close range UFO sighting, she reported. And immediately afterwards, it was followed up with uh, poltergeist activity. And this was the kind of thing that, you know, uh, John Keel was finding his uh, investigations mm-hmm. back in back in the '60s, and he was realizing was the you know phenomenon was far more complex than uh, a lot of the mainstreamers wanted to believe. And so, anyway, I uh, my ship became home ported in Mayport, Florida, which was just a few miles from Jacksonville Beach, and so I. Uh, I Put out a letter, you know, and to the her PO box that I I, uh, I had written to, uh, you know, she had shared with me a year or two before, and thought maybe we could uh, talk and get together, and um, lo and behold, it turned out uh, she wasn't in Jacksonville Beach; she was right on the base I was at, which I didn't realize. Oh wow! Her husband, her husband was also a Navy man. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think maybe synchronicity was helping me out here. Yeah, sounds Um, like it. Anyway, um, this was in 19, let's see, I met her, I first met her in May of 1973. That was soon after my ship became home ported there. And um, so, you know, I was, when I'd get off from the ship in the evening, I would just go over there and we'd talk and we got to investigate cases. In fact, this was... 1973 i mean there was a big ufo wave that erupted then yeah uh and uh, you know i she had a contact over in new orleans <clears throat> who uh was in the ufo field in fact i had read about him in a, a gray barker saucer news a few years earlier mm. and uh he was um really a neat guy, I, I, uh, when the Hickson-Parker abduction case in Pascagoula, Mississippi happened, um, fact is, I was, I was aboard the ship sleeping, and I had this strange dream about these monsters with uh, claws, and uh, I woke up, <laughs> and the radio overhead, which normally was off while we were all sleeping, but for some reason it was on, and it was telling about these uh, two men in Pastor Google in Mississippi who claimed they had been abducted by these strange, abducted by these strange monsters, these creatures with claw-like oh uh, appendages. And so I got out uh, and uh, outside. I dressed, went outside, and, um, went out to the, the deck, and took the you know stairs down to. Uh, there was some payphones down down below on the deck, and I uh, called a called a radio station or tried to anyway, pretty soon there was, the story was in all the papers. There was no, no problem tracking it down. And so I took a flight out there, took some time off, took a flight out and uh, met with the guy in New Orleans and we drove over to Pascagoula and, and interviewed both, uh, you know, briefly, <laughs> uh, hmm. both men. And then we went to the site, you know, where they're back to. So, you know, it was really a, um, it was pretty cool.
1: <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, yeah, because y- you found yourself immediately in the footprints of guys like John Keel at that point. You were able to go boots on the ground as sort of close to when the, the experience happened to these gentlemen and got their accounts. Like, that that must have felt incredible.
2: Yeah, and of course, uh, Ramona Clark, she was the, uh, the lady that uh, was right there on base was a researcher and an experiencer, and we went out on investigations, and uh, uh, we went out even and did a talk at uh, some local uh, metaphysical group and mm. and made more contacts, and so I was interviewing people uh, um, a number of people <laughs> yeah. and it was, it was just quite, uh, quite intriguing. We had quite a, quite a number of sightings that were happening. There was, uh, it seemed like that window around May, that area around, you know, the, uh, Mayport military base was, was almost like a window for these things. Oh, so, so interesting.
1: Yes. Yeah, so interesting.
2: And, uh, so, I mean, um, there was one, one young lady, she was, a uh, a wife to a uh, military guy. And her story appeared in the paper. This was in 73. And Ramona and I went and Both both of us interviewed her. And two nights in a row, right just down the road from uh, Jacksonville Naval Air Station, um, she claimed that she had had this feeling of being watched two nights in a row around, I think, 9 o'clock. And she would look up, and there was this classic flying sausage just moving slowly overhead. Mm. And, you know, she called the police, and uh, the story ended up as a little footnote in the paper. Mm. And Ramona, Ramona had spotted it in you know, the Jacksonville paper and uh, contacted me. And so we, you know, located her. As I recall, there was, a, there was an address. And... I was learning a lot from Ramona being not only a researcher, but an experiencer, because, you know, um, we went, interviewed her about that. And then Ramona said, what other unusual experiences might you have had? And right. the girl who was like 20. She said nothing, really. I mean, and then she, you know, because she was thinking UFOs, I think. And, and it took a little while to process. And she said, well, I, I you know, as far as just unusual experiences, she at one time I had a friend who uh, who died suddenly, and then one day, a few months later, the phone rang, and it was just like his voice, and he said he wanted to come over. And, and she said, I got hysterical, I said, no, no, you can't come here. You know, you know you're, oh my you're dead. <laughs> and then she was uh, telling about uh, being in a seance once and seeing an apparition, and, and then it just, it seemed like all these stories just started to flow out of her, you know. And, uh, you know, and so Ramona was teaching me, (laughs) you know, that uh, you need to try to get people when you're investigating a a recent sighting that may be in the news, don't just stop there, which a lot of people do, you know, and and also especially involves the paranormal elements. But when uh, when you do, just ask them just anything unusual that has ever happened. It opens the door and uh, so many experiences, and this is what Keel found, of course, again and again, um, in the field. Um, Not only have they had a close encounter and probably uh, might well have had a number of close UFO encounters, uh, but also they've had all these weird paranormal and even cryptid sometimes uh, occurrences, you know? So it um, really becomes a very complex, and really, far more interesting phenomena. I've been at this, you know, like now for 55 years, and uh, I guess four months.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and uh, you know, it's it it became an obsession. And uh, um, of course, I got married. I had to kind of cool my heels a little. But every time I have an opportunity, um, kind of frustrating to my wife. Uh, you know, we, we go on a vacation and going down the road and I'll say, hey, you know, this town is where such and such was reported. Yeah. Can't we just go on a vacation? With- <laughs> <laughs> right. Without you bringing that. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's like they uh, should almost know better. Um, uh, you know, a couple questions in regards to what you were just talking about. Um, first, and I have so many questions for you. Um, it, it, I think it's fascinating your wealth and you have such a wealth of experience in this. Uh, y- you know, over, over your time, and as you, you know, find yourself uh, speaking to witnesses, for example, and, and they're experiencing varied phenomenon alongside their, their UFO or, or abduction experiences, have you yourself experienced any sort of, well, they, they sort of like the, most recently, this idea of the hitchhiker has been talked about, right? And it's <clears throat> sort of this after effect of speaking with witnesses or being in the proximity of experience or locations or stories. Have you had anything follow you home during this?
2: Well, uh, Keel talked about the reflective factor. So I kind of relate to that where um, something happens and you notice it and then pretty soon there are these other things you start to notice or that happen to you. It's almost like a, a causal thing and and in the beginning, I would have said no, but I, you know, I, I know in the 70s when I was traveling around, um, like 75, I was meeting different people in the field who were having experiences that were researchers, and they were kind of reluctant to talk about what was had been happening to them, because mm. uh, just like a lot of the witnesses, they didn't want to hurt their reputation you
1: know yeah right and
2: uh but uh they were a number of people and one of them was earl neff now earl neff was the founder back in the 50s of a group in ohio prominent ufo group called the cleveland ufology project or cup which Mm. still exists and uh he had uh you know I think it was about four years prior to actually going on this traveling around. I think it was like 1971. And uh, we had had a brief exchange and I asked him about contactees, And he said the only ones that he ever really believed was Betty and Barney Hill. And he mm-hmm. had him on, on a, on a radio show and interviewed him once, but he said the other ones he did uh, uh, somewhere around, in around Cleveland, he did a, uh, periodically was on the radio and he would get to interview people in the field. And he says, uh, some of the others, he says, I give them enough rope and they can hang themselves, you know?
4: <laughs> so he was,
2: he was extremely skeptical. Um, but in 1975, um, when I was going around interviewing people and I, I was really uh, actively up in northeastern ohio um there was a home up there with a contactee named madeline teagle who was very helpful to me she opened a number of doors uh for meeting other experiencers, hmm. and her experiences were quite extraordinary but in the meantime i was corresponding with dr berthold schwartz who was a prominent psychiatrist from montclair new jersey and he had also been brought into the field as a you know John Keel had uh, brought him into the field about
4: 1968.
2: Hmm. And that was because his his interest had been in parapsychology. Uh, but one day he wrote for medical journal uh, four people he had interviewed who had had UFO experiences. And that was going to be his swan song afterwards. But Paul oh. Harvey, you know, <laughs> the newsman Paul Harvey got the... Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the article, and ran with it, and uh, Keel caught wind of it, and contacted Dr. Swartz, and so when you read some of the John Keel books, you'll occasionally read where he quotes Dr. Swartz on things,
4: yeah
2: uh, case that he's investigated, because he said, um, you know, Dr. Swartz, you need to stay in this field. Uh, we have lots of... Uh, <laughs> lots of need for someone who is interested in parapsychology and UFOs. They seem to be interconnected. So uh, Dr. Swartz was uh, very, very much intrigued. So anyway, um, Dr. Swartz was communicating with me at that time. In fact, it was Ramona Clark who had been in touch with him that put me in touch with Dr. Swartz. Hmm. And um, he was telling me places and people, while I was traveling around from state to state to to go to. And one of them was Earl Neff, the guy that said he was skeptical of all these stories. Well, it turned out he'd had a number of experiences. You can call it hitchhiker, reflective, whatever. But uh, he was doing these lectures and people would come up to him and say, while you were talking, we saw this strange aura of like a, a shadow figure or something, or maybe a little ball of light. Uh, nearby. And he started hearing it enough that he even got a photographer to sit in the audience and just snap pictures of him. Hmm. And then one day he was um, he was approached by this woman who said, Mr. Neff, um, all these interesting cases you investigated, uh, why hasn't someone ever silenced you? <laughs> <laughs> and and he he says He said that um, right at that point, a voice from right behind him, where there was just a blank wall, said, perhaps we like what he's saying. (laughs) 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 And so he immediately called a um, fellow investigator, Larry Moyes, who has had, he had a number of experiences with strange UFO phenomena with contactees himself. And I'd interviewed him. He called him over and said, Larry, take this woman's statement. We just had a very strange experience. And one day he's uh, walking down the sidewalk and this person comes running by him. And he just thinks the guy, you know, was kind of just kind of acting odd, he thought. He turned around Mm -hmm. to, you know, take another look at him. And he says he just he was completely gone. I mean, there was (laughs) no trace of him. Oh my gosh. Um, so there was, you know, but as for myself, uh, I went on for a long time saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. Uh, but I have had some experiences. Um, you know, after John Keel passed away, uh, July 3rd of 2009, uh, I thought, man, you know, um, how sad this guy that had contributed so much and could continue to contribute much is has passed on, and it would be, uh, you know, it's it's just a shame. But uh, a few months later, um, a couple of gentlemen who were doing paranormal work um, were also alien abductees here in Tennessee, and one of them was working with, you know, the, the ghost box. Yeah. Or the spirit box, (laughs) you know, where you take a regular AM FM radio and you, uh, you modify the scanner and keep it where it's on continuous run. And uh, you hope that uh, like in a parent, you know, haunted house or something that you can um, pick up this, you know, use the white noise to pick up voices. Well, uh, what happened was is, I was getting John Keel. Um, Hmm. You know, it's like, what were the odds over and over, especially when we'd ask for him. And on the very anniversary of uh, his passing, um, the one-year anniversary, July 3rd of 2010, I was with uh, these men and and we hooked up, uh, I think we had three recorders running, and we had stereo speakers real loud. We had to yell to to be heard ourselves in the recordings. And uh, we picked up, I mean, that night it, it convinced me. We'd gotten John Keel on uh, investigation about a month before, a couple of months before uh, at a haunted site and some other things. But uh, here it was, um, Brett Oldham, who's the abductee who showed us how to use this instrument, says, uh, you know, asked his spirit guide or tech person on the other side, <laughs> spirit tech. Uh, can you get John Keel to say his name? And within, I mean, just a second or two, a male voice says, "John Keel."
1: Oh, man.
2: And you know, and then uh, he asked him uh, because he knew he was in, interested in cryptids. What can you say um, about Bigfoot? Because you know. Um, again brett was one of these people who was a repeat experiencer he had seen a ghost and an alien all at age five and
4: mm.
2: ongoing experience and he claimed he'd seen a bigfoot uh, as a teenager in ohio so he was interested in this so he thought he'd ask john keel because john keel wrote about Moss Man and bigfoot and all kinds of monsters as he called them <laughs> and uh, so uh, we got a voice that said uh um, it definitely said Bigfoot. What it sounded like was smart Bigfoot. See? And then there was like these <laughs> two other... <laughs> yeah. And then it was like these two other voices in the background. See? And another one said, see? Whoa. So anyway. <laughs> and, and so I knew that Brett nor the other guy, Sandy, didn't really know much really about John Keel at that point. But in 19... 19- 57 keel had written a book called Jidu, uh mysteries of the Orient and uh, and it was about how he trekked from Egypt through India Tibet all the way to Singapore um, months several months back in 1954 to 1955 uh, he was a um, an amateur magician and he was interested in really interested in magic. In fact, as a young boy, he thought about becoming a stage magician. And uh, so he was traveling through this land and and Jedu was considered black magic in these countries.
4: Mm.
2: And uh, he knew that a lot of the tricks were sleight of hand. They weren't real magic, you know, not real supernatural. And he was, uh, you know, pretty skeptical. At that time, and uh, so anyway, I thought, well, I'm going to ask him about Jadu, <laughs> and immediately this voice says Jadu, eh? And uh, <laughs> and you know, I'm I'm thinking, okay, uh, one of the guys. Uh, let's see, Brett says, did he say it? And Sandy says, yeah, yeah, he did. So I'm thinking, okay, I got to strike while the iron's hot. Yes, Jadu, what can you tell us? And it kind of faded in and out, but there was this voice that just kept going on for about a minute. And it was uh, into the fire, into the fire. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, Black Magic, that would be, wow. yeah. And and then it kind of faded out. And then it was, teach me outside. And that's huh. all I could pick up.
4: Wow. But I thought, teach me
2: outside. I thought, this is a guy who traveled a lot of places around the world, traveled, traveled. Uh, he was, he read all the time. He was, had a, you know, an appetite to read all kinds of books, articles all the time, constantly on a variety of subjects, you know, aviation, archaeology, magic, so on and so forth,
4: Yeah.
2: science fiction, whatever. And he was, uh, became a, you know, really prolific writer. And often it was in humor and stuff is what he started out in. But yeah. Uh, anyway um i just you know we had so many interactive responses and we even got to the point where we had we kept doing this i became obsessed with it for a while and uh i would even uh, do things like uh well we did a second session around midnight and uh i would write something on a card and then i would produce it and say can they read this and uh we actually played this game for a while where we did have uh, aud- audible responses where, you know, you could hear them say what was on the card.
4: Hmm.
2: And when I when I got my own ghost box, uh, my son-in-law put a uh, a little label on it, ghost box. And any number of times I have pointed to it during a session, I says, what does this say? In a minute or two or maybe right off, we would get ghost. And then you know, or it might be a hesitation and then ghost box, you know like oh that. wow.
1: That's amazing. So,
2: That's really amazing results, Brent. and And really what um, most of it is just kind of fragmented, but I have had a couple of instances where, you know, like get a whole sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time, Brett had always taught us, you know, at the end of a session, uh, to tell the spirits that we're, okay, this is the end. We're going to discontinue the communication. Um, let us know when it's clear. We'd use that word clear, and it was to, we didn't want anybody uh, to get followed home, get followed to their bedroom that night yeah. or something by the spirits, right. you know, just got to cut it off. So he, he used the word clear. One time I did that. And I had the audio where it says, this cannot clear, this is energy. And, you know, (laughs) I heard that in real time and I used a cuss word. I I didn't, in the audio file I made, I didn't include that, but I I was like, holy boop, boop. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And uh, we had, uh, we were getting a voice. It sounded to me like Enoch and uh, identify itself as Enoch. and. and the others thought maybe it was uh, another word instead of, you know, instead of Enoch, it was something else with a with an I. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I asked one night, <clears throat> uh, what is, um, well, whenever it was, I guess it was in the evening. Um, is it Enoch with an I or an O or what? And it went on for two or three minutes and then. I could hear a voice, came through, startled me, said, Enoch with an O." <laughs> <plus> my... <laughs> so, I mean, you know, um, but I, it's, it's really the same, uh, you know, uh, Brett's spirit guide that he used for this was named Bishop. And whenever I ask who's there to help with the session, I just about every time, I mean, every time I get Bishop and someone named Philip.
4: Hmm.
2: And now I'm in touch with a uh, an archaeologist over in North Carolina who has had a series of contact experiences. And she gets EVPs and she gets Philip. And she says, wow. Phillip, uh, she feels is connected with her UFO experiences. I'm like, huh. okay, was interesting you know so i don't know um but um well it's amazing it's
1: amazing to consider brent and this idea of course that we're we're talking about ufo experiences being connected to potentially something conscious potentially something psychic I, i wonder you know now that, you know, 2017, the New York Times, the breakthrough article about the secret Pentagon program, people are starting to acknowledge UFOs or they are acknowledging UFOs as being real with, without too much of a, a, a grin or a gahaf, right? But I, I wonder, you know, why do you think the nuts and bolts theory has persisted and, you know, continued to take over the conversation, even though there has been research and reports and legitimate studies that suggest it is something much more deeper and closest to consciousness?
2: Well, I, I you know, I I think it's... Um... It seems like a lot of these things not just in our time but in previous generation previous centuries we've had phenomena that seems to conform to our cultural different ex- you know the yeah. expectations together. and it seems like the phenomena interacts with us in a way that uh maybe kind of it'll lead us to believe uh, that's the answer um mm-hmm. And I think there's evidence it, it lies to us. And then maybe sometimes we end up lying to ourselves and we just accept, uh, you know, the kind of trickster element of the phenomena. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, as my friend Greg Little, Dr. Greg Little says, uh, who has studied a lot about Native American shamanism and such and, and uh, sacred sites. Uh, he's written an encyclopedia, in fact, on Indian mounds and, uh, Ancient sites across the United States, and he says, with you know, with the trickster, you have an experience, and uh, you can either just go with what you what you're told, or you can question it and go off in another direction. And so that's um, that's what I'm doing. I I, I thought back really in the, around the mid '70s, you know, uh, we had john Keel and brad steiger and and jacques Vallée and 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 other authors um coming out in like saga magazine was quite prominent at the time with their ufo oh, sure. report published for a number of years and i really thought okay the the old mainstream et nuts and bolts thing is is going to kind of you know Flip away here, we're going to we're going to hear more about the alternative ideas and, and, and theories and possibilities. And But then, uh, you know, Roswell became revived and <laughs> and talk about beating a dead horse and mm-hmm. uh, and you know, just other areas. But now we got, you know. What happened uh, with, you know, the investigations done. Like at the uh, Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, and military people will be involved in that, and uh, and they're really having experiences like you say, the hitchhiker thing, and um, poltergeist phenomena, um, dogmen, and so on. Yeah. That uh, really was right up Keel's alley. And and I, you know, it's but now my interactions with the EVP thing was was has been kind of frustrating because mm-hmm. uh, I. I get little bits and pieces and, and it doesn't seem like they're really cooperating. You know, someone told me recently, <laughs> uh, you know, Hey, Brent, you're, I, I've, I've been, I've done some sessions with you. In fact, he's a ex uh, um, army major who works with um, um, you know, the um, um, Oh, you know, the Hemi sync uh group there in Virginia, uh okay. Monroe Institute. Sure. <laughs> and and uh and he says, you know, you uh you now just have to go to the next level. And I said, Next level. I said, Hey, yeah, uh, uh I think the ball is in their court, you know, they need to work with me a little more. <laughs> so anyway, we're gonna get together and, and you know, he can maybe explain his ideas on that a little more, but it's uh Yeah.
1: I would be really, I'm very curious as to what he means
2: by that. Yeah. He's, he's researching, uh, UFO phenomena across the U S he's gone out and tried to, you know, with the aim of phot- photographing these things. In fact, I've done some sky watches with him at a local site down here in Alabama. Um, but he's traveled all the way to like, you know, the West coast on, on, and down into, uh, the Southwest, uh, working with uh, some Native Americans and such uh, that's an area of interest yeah I think the shamans had uh, some insights and well certainly trickster as part of their vocabulary yeah and uh, they they tried to work with uh, those elements and it goes back centuries and centuries I think some of their insights are are valuable yeah um, but uh, and uh, Right now, I'm trying to um, explain this, and I'm, I'm like, it's it's like you go in so many different directions. Uh, you can kind of get lost in the conversation. Oh,
1: my gosh. Yeah, well, <clears throat> we're not lost over here. You're explaining it great. And these are all topics, and it's from a perspective, I think, a lens that a lot of my listeners are very into. Um, a lot of my listeners are are, you know, if not devotees, uh, have definitely experienced and read a, a, a breadth of Keel's work and, and Valet and are, are very on the high strangeness tip. Not a lot of nut and bolters, I think, as my listeners <laughs> tell you the truth. But listen, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you had a special relationship with Keel. You had an experience that, that touched you there when, when you may have made contact in some form. Uh, during the Spirit Box sessions. But, you know, I'm curious, when when did you first meet Kiel? Can you describe a little bit about what that was like back in the day?
2: Well, you know, I had been to New York City several times, and, uh, I, you know, I uh, really, I initiated correspondence with him in October 1969. That was, that was the beginning of our connection. And what it was is, is there was a magazine published uh, out of Florida called Salsa Scoop, and I got to be on the board of Salsa Scoop as a main director. Brad Steiger was, I think, public relations, <laughs> and uh, it was edited and produced by Joan Whitnor, who became a, a writer with Brad Steiger of some books and articles that he wrote back, back at that time. So that was in 1969. I, I kept seeing Brad – I mean, I kept seeing uh, John Keel – he wrote a number of articles in a saucer scoop and he made it very easy. He had a PO box that he was always putting each article. So I simply wrote it (laughs) and then he wrote back and he had a a non-scheduled newsletter called anomaly. And of course I had my, I had my mimeographed saucer, sauceritis. So we exchanged publications and, uh, and it went on and we had, uh, exchanged letters. Uh, in fact, one time he wrote me a three-page letter, uh, single-spaced, I mean, I was like over the moon. Uh, but I never ever actually met him in person. I would go uh, to New York City a number of times, and uh, uh, I even while I was in New York City, I bought a book that on apparitions that he recommended that I, I read, I found it in a bookstore there. But I'd try to look for his number in a phone book, and it wouldn't be there. Hmm. Um, you know what I should have done. I should have, before going to New York City, I should have written him and said, "Hey." Uh, <laughs> um, but I was a little, I was a little nervous as a teenager. Yeah, you, you were,
1: to, you're t- telling me this, but you were like what, like seventeen years old, 16, 17 years old, or something
2: at this time? Yeah, I started out at age fourteen. Yeah. Uh, and you know, uh, so I'd be a little just, nervous
1: you? too. I'd kind of forget that I think too. I and mean, John Keel well, at that time well, was like well, almost forty, right?
2: Yeah, he was in his thirties. Uh, he um, he was actually actually Keel was he'd written. I it really this really kind of bothered me about you know I I tried to write real business like letters you know make him think that I was older than I was uh-huh. and and he had written in some of his articles, but all the problems he had with teenage UFO buffs at these <laughs> UFO clubs that he would sometimes drift into and little old ladies and tennis shoes <laughs> and i said oh my god i can't let him know i'm a teenager <laughs> makes sense yeah so you know but i i've i've we exchanged a lot of letters and when i went into the service we lost touch for a while and i got out got married and then uh i wrote him again and uh he he remembered me and he says uh what the hell are you doing in Tennessee? He says, <laughs> uh, "I remember you joined the Marines or the Navy, you know." And and so I kind of brought him up to date, and then a few times we talked on the phone. Uh, but you know, it uh, it kind of you know it's kind of it wasn't a constant thing there. It was really uh, from '69 to about. 71, 72. We we had a real active correspondence, and he was producing his anomaly. I was exchanging my magazine for his, and, and along with other other people. Um, um, and I I I was telling Lauren Coleman recently, uh, you were you were my ABSM consultant. I put it right up there on the front of my magazine. <laughs> uh, you know some of the, the big names. He would just start now, and he was he was also going on uh, in a recent exchange about how the fact that he says, you know, when we corresponded uh, initially, uh, we were quite young at the time. But uh, he says I was in Illinois, and you're in Maine, and now I'm in Maine, and where are you? And I said, well, I'm in Tennessee, so you know, I didn't go to Illinois. Um, and he says, yeah, but he says, I had a brother who lived in Illinois. I mean, in Tennessee, <laughs> and he, says, I, he says, I do have a Tennessee connection. So there, <laughs> <laughs> right, right.
1: Oh uh, yeah. It all shakes up in that way. That's funny. That is funny. You know, when you look back on those years of, um, discovery that you had, you know, before things got a little bit more quiet after you moved to Tennessee and got married, I, you know, what do you think of those days? you know, and what do you take away from, from those experiences?
2: Well, uh, it was, it was uh, (laughs) quite an interesting journey. I, you know, it, it, uh, it meant a lot to me. It was, uh, it was very, um, you know, I've, I've always been curious about what happens like in when we die, why are we here? What's this all about? And, uh, you know, the UFO thing, it kept evolving. And, and it was really part of these questions, you know? And, um, so if it's the trickster, well, you know, it's, uh, at least we know there's something there that, uh, communicates with us and, you know, may, may lie. Um, (laughs) I know that my friend Greg Little says, yeah, the, the, the shamans of all they, they realized that they, they lied, but they still, they were about trying to maintain um, a balance and, and cooperate. They knew that it also could tell the future and they would try to learn what they could from it. Yeah. And uh, um, he said a lot of people um, have experiences and, you know, he brought up, uh, in fact, he has written a book with Andrew Collins, a British author quite well-known as we see them on ancient aliens quite often. Sure. <clears throat> and it's called Origin of the, the Gods, Origins of the Gods. It's even got a uh, forward by uh, Eric Von Daniken, who's been quite mm. impressed with their work. And, uh, you know, they they delve into all these things, the Marian apparitions, the shamanic elements, and, and John Keel, and, um, and, uh, and also... Uh, People who actually did get a lot of accurate information, um, like Edgar Cayce and uh, Joan of Arc, you know, hearing voices that guided yeah. her to, you know. And uh, Emanuel Swedenborg from Sweden, who was a, back in the 1600s, a, a brilliant scientist, of, knew lots of different areas of discipline that he was involved in. And uh, for about, I think it was 28 years, had uh, a series of experiences with these beings who uh, claim to be from outer space. They look perfectly human. He actually physically touched them. Um, he said they, they were real. And mm. they took him on to uh, different planets within our solar system. And Greg says, but now we know those planets, based on all the information that we have, can't support human life. So, um, you know, again, it's the trickster phenomena. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh Again, it's you know having these abilities, be able to see parts of the future. Uh, he was dealing with that, you know, and with uh, his investigations, particularly in you know around in and around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the the dreams of the collapse of the some. Well, he didn't really know what was going to. He knew something was supposed to happen on the Tennessee. I mean, on the <laughs> on the Ohio River. And uh, it was going to be a disaster, and they're going to be floating Christmas packages or whatever. Right. And, uh, and he and, uh, and uh, Dan Drazen, who was a movie producer, a documentary producer, um, hadn't been at it too long at that time. He's still at it, though, now. Uh, and I, I finally was able to get in contact with him. And so he's told me the story too, uh, where he and John Keel on December fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven, were in Keel's apartment and they were um, waiting for the power to go out. There was a prediction that the power was going to go out. What happened instead was the news came over the television that the Silver Bridge collapsed. <laughs> and one thing that didn't show up, uh, what did he never mentioned? in his uh, Mothman Prophecies about all that. And you'll see Dan Drizner written several times in in the Mothman Prophecies. Um, But I got the story from Dan and uh, from a few others um, about how that day, early afternoon to nearly midnight, an old friend had showed up at his door. We went out to eat. I uh, even went to a Jim Mosley uh, talk in downtown New York and everything seemed normal. Had, you know, this friend's memories, a Joe Woodvine who worked for the transit authority. And uh, so all that seemed normal. Um, he wrote in the Mothman prophecies, how, you know, how he probably thought they'd lost their mind when the, you know, hearing about the bridge collapse in Ohio, that they got all excited and, you know, <laughs> but uh, um, later on, he sees, you know, the guy's wife and. Uh, at uh, Macy's, I guess she was working there and he says, oh, I, I saw Joe. A while back, how's he doing? And she says uh, he passed away and, you know, and, and one thing led to another. And uh he said, well, she said he passed away in July 1965 of a heart attack. And John Keel says, uh, that's impossible. Uh, I saw him, you know, uh, December of 67. And and uh, he wrote this letter to Dan Drazen, which Dan sent me a copy of the letter. He says, uh, says uh, no, you know, she got rather indignant. You know, don't you think I know? When my husband died i was there right. and uh so anyway um, oh my god he said he said that kind of gave him <laughs> some sleepless nights um <laughs> and that uh he <laughs> just didn't uh you know keel had a hard time accepting that a lot of people would have said wow this is amazing this is my proof of life after death but for keel it's like yeah, you know, I've been a lifelong atheist. What the hell's going on here? I kind of rock this world. And uh, he told the same story to uh, Tim uh, and John Frick, uh, who are often at the, uh, who are paranormal crypt investigators and big uh, Keelians too uh, from Maryland who often go to uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, attending the Mothman festivals. In fact, they dress up as MIB. They become a part of the part of the scene, <laughs> That's and right. uh, they spent about eight hours with John Keel uh, in two thousand three. And the one time that Keel went to uh, to the Mothman festival, and they introduced the the big statue of the Mothman there in the main street, and uh, and Keel, they said, told him that story. They never told uh, Keel. Never told them who it was, but, you know, that had passed. There wasn't a name, but the story is the same. The unknown
0: and our relationship to it. This is Night Drift with Jim Perry. Our next guest is a Fortian, and we'll find out exactly what that is from him. He is also the editor-in-chief of Pursuit magazine. Welcome, please, John Keel. John, how are you? So you're a Fortean, eh? Oh, well, I've been trying to outgrow it. Actually, uh, What is a Fortean? Char- oh, it's spelled F-O-R-T-E-A-N.
3: What is that? Uh, back in the early part of the century, there was a man named Charles Fort who spent his entire life in the New York Public Library, Mm -hmm. going through the old scientific journals and old newspapers. And he published a series of books about strange things that turned up in these old journals, like uh, when it would rain frogs in France, or red snow in Switzerland. He kept track of all these things, did a series of books, and we started calling these events 14 events. I see. And today, we still keep track.
0: Of it. Now, the two examples you cited there, I have, uh, I've heard of raining the frogs, and, it, and it's always a matter of, it's either one an old wives' tale. Uh, remember the time it rained wives' tales? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, or it's uh, disputed in some, they could just say, well, there were frogs in the trees. When it rained, they jumped out.
3: Well, we have compiled a list of several thousand mysterious things that have fallen from the sky, They uh, documented things. They include things like stone pillars, cannonballs uh all kinds of strange things in china it once rained raw meat no no
0: there's no explanation when when in china did it rain raw meat
3: well quite a while ago it was in the 19th century now how is it
0: that all the unexplained things took place in the 19th century or before they're still taking place give me a recent unexplained thing other uh, than amazing al
3: every (laughs) every january and february here in the northeast we have what we call skyquakes they get into the papers sometimes Now, recently they've been blaming the Concorde for this, but this has been going on, we've been keeping track of this since uh, about 1840. What is a skyquake? It's an explosion in the sky. We have no explanation for it. We've got a lot of pseudo explanations. Well, how do we know when we hear one or see one? Because it's like when a jet jet plane passes over at, uh, you know, uh, Mach 2. It's like uh, breaking the sound barrier. It's an explosion that shatters, sometimes shatters windows and so on. And, this has been going on in in Connecticut, for example. The Indians had legends about this going way back. So this has been going on for a very long time. But every time it happens, the scientists come up with a new far-fetched explanation for it.
0: What is the um, the most common or 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 daily unexplained occurrence? I mean, something that we would all say, yeah, that's that thing. We can't explain it. What?
3: <laughs> well, we don't necessarily have daily occurrences, but uh, in recent years, we, the UFO phenomenon has been. Very common around the world. Mm-hmm. Right now it's going on in Argentina. And uh, while a lot of people think they have an explanation for it, uh,
0: actually we're just beginning to find out uh, what's really going on with the UFO phenomenon. UFOs are, are pretty much, I would guess, if we asked the audience, I, we'd probably find over half of them said, yeah, they have reason to believe there's something going on out there, I think.
3: At, at least 10% of them have probably seen one themselves. Has
0: anybody here ever seen one of these things? Yeah. People yeah. applaud if you've seen one. Yeah. And and how many of you think there may be something visiting us?
1: Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah, the the, the types of experiences that that he had along the way. And listen, he was also, for the most part, there was a lot of it that he did include in published works, uh, unlike a lot of you know, ufologists, or or even you know, sort of writers at the time that would, that as you mentioned, like they would, they didn't want to be looked at as similar to the witnesses, and and seem crazy to people. But but Keel he would go there.
2: Yeah, and Keel, uh, you know, uh, he would. Um, uh, I know in some of the letters I got, you know, I'd be like, uh, now I'm going to tell you this, but don't don't, you know. Keep it to yourself, because hmm. I was a teenager, and I, I'm sure he probably figured that out. At, you know, but uh, <laughs> there were a couple of occasions where I kind of uh, uh, irritated him a little because I uh, there were two stories that I had gotten information. One was a letter a guy in Oklahoma had shared with me about Keel talking about gypsies. That was just too much. I put it in the next newsletter, and then Keel reads it and says, "I wish you had consulted with me." Uh, you know, you took me a little out of context. <laughs> that was a hell of a letter. I just couldn't pass it up. <laughs> and then he went on to explain further about the gypsies, which was pretty cool. <laughs> but anyway.
1: <laughs> oh, that's so amazing. That's so amazing. And, and um, you know, for those listening, you've you've wrote four books now, right?
2: Is, is that correct? Uh, three books, uh, three books. And, you know, first one, Visitors from Hidden Realms. And then the second one was On the Edge of Reality. And then I decided, hey, you know, John Keel. I mean, he had such an influence on the direction I took in the field. And, uh, and Rosemary Ellen Giley, who was a good friend of Keel's for quite a while. And uh, she worked for Fate Magazine uh, as I think an associate editor for a while and wrote uh, various articles. She was she was another prolific writer and she had ideas similar to Keel, and she wrote the she not only wrote the forward to my book on Keel and the uh, she also did an interview with me, uh, but she was also originally going to publish it. But unfortunately, she you know had developed cancer and uh, but she did a lot of editing work on what I wrote. Mm. (laughs) I mean. And helped me prepare it, and then she even uh, put on the brakes and said, "Look, I knew Keel, and we need to ha- uh, reach out to some more people." She made some a couple of suggestions of some other people I need to try to interview hmm. who knew Keel. And so, hey, this was great, you know. I mean, I was all for uh, <laughs> um, one of them. I think was Michael Grosso, PhD, It was uh, in philosophy and. He had had a, a very strange, high strange sighting uh, himself, and uh, he was, uh, he thought Keel was quite, quite brilliant. And uh, he himself is still working on all the, the paranormal, uh, high strange elements there on all of this. And uh, I interviewed uh, Doug Skinner, who was Keel's friend, a good friend of Keel's, who in fact never even heard the story um about the you know himself about the visitor that Keel had from his past. Oh, that's <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> he said, you know, we would often get together and we would, you know, uh he said I was interested in 14, but he's he was an actor and a ventriloquist and his interest in Kiel's, and Keel's and Keel of course had a lot of uh a lot of experience uh with the media and so That was what they often talked about, you know. Right. Uh, And he never, Keel never even mentioned. uh, He said uh, about the uh, about this uh, Joe Woodvine experience. That
1: makes sense. And and
2: and Keel didn't include it in Mothman prophecies. Uh, He, and and you know, I kind of wonder if maybe it's just like you know, it it just seemed like it would have been over the top, and he had enough uh, confrontation with people in the UFO field over some of the (laughs) things he had already written. Like I say, sometimes he'd write a letter and he'd say, just keep this to yourself. We don't want to, you know, uh, get these uh, mainstreamers stirred up or something. Right. <laughs> and I guess he felt like he had to warn me as a teenager because, you know, I, I had already run ahead ahead of him with a couple stories. So <laughs> Right. Let's keep this kid in check a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And one of them I didn't see any harm, and it was somebody had written to uh, the u s Geological Survey and uh, got a response from somebody there saying that you know uh, as I recall, it was no, we didn't do these aero geomagnetic anomaly maps or whatever which Keeley had written about and and they in fact did so I don't know what this guy was talking about, but I just thought mm-hmm. it was interesting that someone would uh, say they didn't and uh, and again, he said, I wish you'd consulted with me first before you ran that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I don't know. Yeah, I should have. In hindsight, hindsight's always better than foresight. <laughs> right. Well,
1: got to learn somehow, right? Um, and and what yeah. a, what a what an editor at that.
2: <laughs> oh me.
1: Well, Brent, but, uh, 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 it's it's a really great book it's a great collection of stories not just about Keel but but you inject as you said a, a lot of voices a lot of contemporaries of his uh, there's a great interview in here with Paul Eno as well. I mean, yeah, there's things about, you know, personal things in nature with Doug Skinner and, and his relationship. And it's just, it's it's really great. Kathleen Martin's in here. It There's there's so many um, great thought leaders that are commenting and sharing stories about John. It's a very fun book. And of course, you include, you know, some of the cases that really spun off and, and went into your direction. So, I think it's really great. People should check it out. It's John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries. And there's going to be a link in the show notes for people to check out. Um, I'm wondering, Brent, if if there's a way any of us can take a look at um those issues of sauceritis. Have
2: you thought about republishing any of those? Um uh, I yeah, you know, my friend Greg Little said I should. Um, I was a teenager. Um, uh huh. Almost embarrassed at this point. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> hey, that's
1: that's that's history of, uh, of of breakthrough ufology. There, you know what I mean.
2: But I understand. Yeah, time, <laughs> it was a wild ride. <laughs> oh me! There's so much. I think that in recent years, I, I've come to realize that uh, I. I'm, I'm like telling people to be objective and, and take an unbiased approach to the data and a multidisciplinary approach. And you can be mm-hmm. a, a PhD in one thing, but that doesn't mean you got a handle on the UFO phenomena. Cause you need, you need to work with people from all different fields. Right. Uh, and uh, because this thing is just too big for uh, too big for one person to handle, you know, John right. Keel, you know, he was, he wrote some really fascinating stuff but, you know, it was beyond him. And he, he wrote me a few years before he passed, uh, because I'd shared with him my first book, uh, Visitors from Hidden Realms. And he wrote that uh he says, I can kinda I kinda identify with how you, you know, try to uh uh suggest or theorize, but he says, even even in my own case, I don't know. He says I'm I'm just I just speculated and uh a lot of people didn't like that, but, you know, uh, I just presented what I thought might be the most plausible explanation, uh, plausible areas to study, to explore. uh, But I still don't really know what this uh, ultimately all of it means exactly. So, you know, and uh, I think that there's a phenomenon that, you know, and, and I think he'll realize this uh, that it uh, it generates these archetypal as Jung would have called them um, forms that do conform to our expectations of what we think is out there and and then um, our own brain kind of just projects some of this yeah. uh, too um, and right. uh, it's uh, in fact Rosemary Giley expressed it in the foreword in my book pretty pretty well. She felt that he knew more than he he told and thought he kept some secrets to himself, she wrote. And mm-hmm. uh, she said that she felt that Keel, uh, you know, felt that human consciousness pre- projects energy that comes back to us in entity form. She says, I believe that human consciousness is the most important yet most overlooked uh, factor in all of our extraordinary experiences and i you know I, I really think that where scientists need to really focus is on consciousness and physics and hey you know nuts and bolts physics is fine but just you know don't stop there i got to consider quantum physics got to consider parapsychology keel felt that parapsychology uh, really Ufology should have been a branch of parapsychology. Right. And uh, and I know in his first book, (laughs) uh, Strange Creatures in Time and Space, back in 1970, it actually came out before Operation Trojan Horse, Mm. which a lot of people identify as his first book. But he wrote so much in that Operation Trojan Horse, he couldn't, you know, the publisher said that's too much. So he divided it out and included uh, a lot of the cryptid stuff in Mm. Strange Creatures in Time and Space. (laughs)
4: <laughs>
2: and uh and he said you know whether you know we are talking about aliens or ghosts hey you know so take your pick he felt like they were all interrelated and i asked him one time in a phone conversation about uh well you know you you often cast kind of a dark uh, uh, feeling about a lot of these things in fact he once said he felt more more in common with a demonologist than he, being a ufologist he didn't mm. really didn't think ufologist was cool <laughs> yeah and and you know and all these strange things that happened trying to help people you know through their experiences and uh and I said, well you know like these marian apparitions, people seeing angels uh, uh do you you feel any different about that and he says. No, they all end up they all end up sour in the end, is what he said. <laughs> um, <laughs> I still you know want to believe that uh, there's there's some good that we can get out of this, you know
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, at the heart of it, I hope so, because it's seemingly the nature of why any of this matters. It seemingly is tied to like sort of what consciousness is. And what our relationship to not just the unknown, but what our relationship to the meaning of life is—it's kind of like talking about some big questions here.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this—that's why I can't let it go because it touches upon all these different areas of, um, that seem relevant. To so, you know, it's uh, instead of going to spending a lot of time going to church on Sundays, I'm I'm digging through these books and <laughs> asking all these strange questions. <laughs> i'm not alone uh, uh sometimes in your own family you, you know you get skeptical looks from family members you know, like, right what are right. you what are you doing in comments you know like well maybe there's something to it <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll hold judgment for now <laughs>
1: yeah yeah let me know if you uh you know figure it all out is what
2: they're yeah, saying come up with some <laughs> real real evidence yeah <laughs> right
1: well i love it and of course john keel You know. Um, one of his famous business cards, he made many, uh, was entitled "Not an Authority on Anything." And uh, yeah. that, that's a really fun place to, to be because it endlessly opens up the opportunity for questioning and for curiosity.:
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. He would be you know, he'd put, I think he was a photographer, writer, and not an authority on anything. and that, you know, that's what you need is someone coming at it uh, objectively. Um, not with an ax to grind necessarily.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, he also had the expression in Mothman Prophecies um, of um, belief is the enemy, you know? Yeah. And oh, man. But, you know, in the back of our minds, and, and, and even with Keel, I mean, we, we kind of got an idea, you know, we kind of work, you know, it's, it's hard to always walk that, tightrope of objectivity between belief and disbelief. And, and you know, um, I know that when when uh, Brett Oldham first, uh, back a little over a decade ago, introduced myself and our friend Sandy Nichols to the ghost box, um, you know, uh, my wife was there, my daughter, and they're interested, you know, especially my daughter in, in the paranormal. And my daughter just had a, uh, a young boy. So someone's going to have to look at him after, after him. So I said, yeah, you guys go. I've, I've kind of, you know, messed with EV stuff, never really had any luck, but yeah, go for it. (laughs) I'll just stay in this other room. (laughs) And then they told me, you know, well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, We heard names and, and uh, oh really? Yeah. So I thought, "Mm, okay. Uh, So, you know, I tested it out and sure enough, I mean, I got first last names and, and it was, it developed kind of high strange. And for about four years, I was doing a lot of sessions, spending hours reviewing audio and, and, uh, but, uh, it didn't advance my knowledge of who they were, you know, <laughs> right. uh, I'd ask Bishop and I'd ask Bishop and Philip, who are you? Who are you? And, and never get a real answer. Uh, Found out that it was Enoch with an O. Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, you know, I and you know, I was telling about my frustration to to Greg Little one day and on the phone. He said, "Well, you know, Brent, it's, uh, it's kind of like John Keel said. You know, um, it gives you just you know the trickster always gives you just enough to uh, keep you coming back and and trying to find out more, and and yet you really you really don't." <laughs> mm. But we were talking recently, again, I said, you know what, the thing is, at least if you, you know, you you recognize the trickster and you go on from there, um, uh, you have learned something. (laughs) You can't always believe exactly what they say, but you can still fish around. And um, that's a powerful point, isn't
1: it? That's a powerful piece of insight to go into any conversation
2: knowing yeah, that you know. you know it's it's but you know when someone's had an experience as keel pointed out you know uh you're uh outside your house one day and flying on lands according to your perception and a um uh, a being gets out and says they're from venus um a lot of people yeah i mean after an experience like that seems all perfectly real and legit hey Uh, If you're going to mention it to someone, you're going to tell them, yeah, I met this man from Venus, you know, (laughs) even though Venus is hot as hell. (laughs) 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 And it doesn't make sense. But um, I remember reading something Brad Steiger once wrote that someone thought maybe uh, uh, Venus, maybe the Venus stories, the only way they could make sense was maybe it was beings from Venus uh, who were in like a spiritual dimension. I don't know about that, but... Mm, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not only well,
1: another planet, it's another dimension, and it's way over there.
2: Yeah. Although, you know, Keel certainly thought maybe another dimension, a parallel world. Uh, he called them ultra-terrestrials, which mm-hmm. I understand... Ivan Sanderson was actually the one that he came up with that, but mm-hmm. it's so... I would, ultra-terrestrials is just... Really, it's like Keel copyrighted it, you know? It's, uh, yeah. He used it so much. Well, Hello. let's
1: talk for a second about the Eighth Tower, where he, you know, uh, displays some information about ultra-terrestrials and, and something called this the super spectrum. Um, in that book, I, I, you know, I personally feel that there's probably a lot of um, a lot of questions for more modern readers about what this book is saying, and kind of, I don't know, um, and maybe I'm wrong, but interpreting it as objective viewpoint or theory. From Kiel, when I believe, if I understand correctly, this was more of an attempt to kind of illustrate through, you know, metaphors potentially about what he felt the relationship to us and this unknown really was. Because if you look at this book, there, he's using a lot of different words for things that within shamanic traditions, are, you know, have already been displayed, and within parapsychology, have already been displayed. Do you think that that book? the Eighth Tower is sort of controversial in, in some regard?
2: Well, yeah. Um, I mean, he was trying to illustrate how it uh, it could be in, in view of what he was looking at, you know, and, yeah. and uh, it was, uh, he went into greater depth than he did like in Operation Trojan Horse was uh, uh, theories about it. Um, and he talked about you know, transmogrification or transmutation, uh, how something could be almost like a thought form and then manifest as a physical thing, have a temporary existence. And then like all these cryptid events, you know, um, there's a, there's a, suddenly a Bigfoot and it's uh, eating, <laughs> eating somebody's farm animals and it goes on for a week or two and then suddenly it's gone. You got all the people out with their, their guns looking for it Hmm. and uh and you know he he initially he didn't put two and two together in the beginning uh in 66 when he decided to delve into the ufo thing full time uh, but he had had experiences going back to his childhood i discovered where there was like uh when he was about 10 years old he lived on this farm in new york and there was like people called it a gorilla, and a number of people had seen it, and they were really scared. And the people just like today, going out with their shotguns looking for it. And as soon as it, right. you know a number of people seen it, went out about a week, and then it was all over. He didn't put that all together, you know. But when he was over, you know, in the far east and 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 uh, India and and uh, Tibet and there was reports of Yeti. In fact, he thought he might have heard the call. He might have even seen it at a distance one time and saw the, the tracks. And he really thought, this is this is interesting. And you know, it kind of reminded him of <laughs> what he'd seen in New York. And hmm. and he had a couple of experiences seeing UFOs uh, once at age seven with his uh, stepdad and his mother uh, driving at night. And suddenly this, it looks like at first they thought there was a fire on this hilltop and some of this barn-sized thing, uh, brightly illuminated sphere, rose up from the hilltop and then just took off. And then in 1954 in Egypt, he sees a, what looks like a metallic disc-shaped uh, dome classic saucer, hovering over the uh, Aswam dam. And uh, so he, he was already like having all these kind of synchronistic experiences yeah. Uh, but, he, you know, but he was, he really wasn't really into the UFO. And, and then initially in 66, when he first started writing, he was thinking E.T. But um, as he got out in the field, he was hearing, you know, all these other bizarre things. The Mothman, the Men in Black, the poltergeist outbreaks and, and contactee stories. Um, he actually did something that, you know, like some organizations, some investigators, like the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, prominent civilian group uh, formed by uh, retired major Donald Kehoe in 1956. And they had a habit of uh, ridiculing like George Adamski. And they they so felt that the contactees were all fakes and no doubt there (laughs) were some fakes and his, you know, uh, Kehoe was always attacking this, and so he didn't want any reports of a UFO that landed and a being got out. Uh, meanwhile, the other organization that was prominent at the time, APRO, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, they were gathering some data. Uh, a lot of it came from Central and South America, too, as well as the United States, of beings who were seen, and, you know, but they, they still were. Cautious with you know the full-blown contactee space brother thing, but yeah. um, but they were at least working including that. I think NICAP didn't include any of it until finally with the Betty and Barney Hill case. Mm. But uh, Keel went ahead and wrote an article for a, a magazine, and he mentioned about who's driving these things. And next thing he knows, he gets uh, he's called in by the editor of this magazine, and. He says, "What? Uh, what did you need?" And the guy points over to a corner of the room of his office, and uh, there's about, you know, five or six big old bags of uh, letters from people all over who read the article, and, and there were a lot of reports of people said they had, you know, seen the occupants, hmm. and uh, and also reported missing time. None of which was popular at that time, you know. Yeah. Uh, and but uh, Keel was he had a head start on Whitley Strieber and Bud Hopkins and all the others, you know. Yeah. Uh, it would be, but yet he was, you know, ridiculed for taking an interest in in a lot of these these areas at the time. But mm. he did. And but at the uh, end of the
1: day, that that added some tension to his career, right? I mean, looking at someone, if if I'm if I'm correct in 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 what I've been studying. You know, he really fancied himself as being a part of the entertainment business and a writer and a playwright potentially, and not really so much as a ufologist or even a Fortian,
2: right? Yeah. Well, a Fortian. He was more of a Fortian. Uh, and his his good friend Doug Skinner was a Fortian as well. Uh, they communicate on that language. Uh, he thought that Fortians were closer to the truth because they were examining all these different elements than than the ufo crowd
4: mm-hmm.
2: um but yeah he did uh, he wrote on a lot of different subjects uh he was a had an honorary phd in herpetology uh he loved snakes in fact his new york apartment had cages with snakes in them oh, cobras wow. and whatever and you know that was one of his interests he was interested in in an aviation he even became a pilot small plane pilot and um magic and um, so his interest, and he said he couldn't really um, make a living at uh, just writing UFO articles. So uh, he wrote fiction, humor, and all kinds of things. And he um, he also um, was a, um, like a, a head writer for Merv Griffin and, and Gene Rayburn. And uh, you know, he appeared on the Johnny Carson show, Jack Parr. David Letterman, which uh, that uh, YouTube I know is is still still out there. That's right. <laughs> you YouTube. can't find that one. Yep. Yeah. Um, but uh, I thought it was interesting that you know he. I, I've kind of wondered um, he was a technical advisor for the Library of Congress uh, back. Uh, whew, let me see. Uh, 68 to 69. And you know, there was the whole thing that Lynn Cato, who wrote this like 400-page uh, um, bibliography on, on all these books written on the subject of UFOs.
4: Right. And
2: she mentions how there were all kinds of cases in there of UFO literature that included poltergeists and demons and angels and automatic writing and all these paranormal elements. And... And uh, in Keel's book, Operation Trojan Rose he only included two paragraphs about that um, <laughs> book. Lo and behold, he worked there, you know, for a time. Yeah. And he got to know Lynn Cato. They even dated. That's I mean, one of,
1: yeah, exactly. Like that's what I was going to mention. They even had a romantic relationship, him and Lynn.
2: Yeah, and I, I Doug Skinner on his uh, John uh, site there. Um, which he has a section each month that, you know, goes back several years now and includes letters that Keel wrote, people wrote to him and things and photographs and articles. And, and uh, last time I checked, there was a number of uh, letters exchanges between, uh, you know, John Keel and Lynn Coteau. Oh, yeah. Lynn Coteau. And I noticed on Facebook, she had a, uh, a page, but it hadn't been active in a while, you know, and of you know how, a lot of times on facebook you can die and <laughs> you're still on facebook right yeah and i uh i saw that my you know my friend andrew collins over in england was listed as, as a you, you know a contact and so i contacted him thinking okay maybe i can find out something about uh because i i wanted to interview her for my book yeah of course and i i got in touch with him and he says no, I never wrote her, so I don't know how he got, (laughs) you know, so he was, he was friends with her, but anyway, uh, but yeah, I, I checked, there was like a phone number, but it wasn't, you know, active anymore, so, um, but it would be great, I mean, uh, um, to, to have tracked her down, or uh, if I could still, uh, if anybody out there knows where Lynn Coteau is, I think she's, if she's, you know, she might still be in the Washington, D.C. area. But uh, yeah, if anyone a... listening
1: to this knows, re- reach out. <laughs> Jim at UFAMED.com and I'll share it with
2: Brent. There was a story in the uh, in Mothman Prophecies about this woman working with the Library of Congress and she's researching UFOs. And she's on the way to visit Ivan Sanderson and she's followed and uh, pulls into a gas station. This guy had been following her got up under her vehicle and said he, he thought there was some problem with the tires or something. And then he got out and uh, she made her real nervous. And she'd been noticing he'd been following a while. And so on the side of his, his, he was driving a, a panel truck and there was a, a business. And later she got to Ivan Sanderson, told him what happened. And uh, this, um, so they got under the vehicle, and there was these uh, section, like in a triangle, I think, uh, underneath the the motor, hmm. uh, where there was like uh, this buddy like stuff. And he got on the phone with Keel, and then uh, he put uh, Lynn on the phone too. Except in the article, it didn't say it was Lynn, but I, I surmised that this was and said, yeah, yeah, that was Lynn Coteau. So. That was very interesting, and it looked like that someone was following because when the police came and checked on the, uh, the what was on the side of the vehicle, um, showed that it wasn't theirs. Uh, in fact, as I recall, that business didn't even exist. <laughs> hmm. And uh, Keel noted that you know, every time he recorded the conversation with Ivan and her and his own voice, but it was only when Lynn was talking that it all got staticky. What? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but Keel's concern was that it was um, the paste thing might have been like, like it was an explosive or something right. underneath there. Um, Ivan Sanderson thought that it was perhaps a, uh, some tracking device and he decided, you know, that we better remove this. <laughs> yeah. And he had already He'd already stopped and tried to start a conversation with her at another stop previous. And then the second stop, he insisted that he get up under her vehicle. And she said, no, no, that's not necessary. No, I think there's something wrong there. And he spent a good bit of time underneath there. And somebody that, that uh, pumped the gas at this place uh, came out and <clears throat> stood nearby, too. Um, but, yeah, I thought what was interesting in my theory was this was uh, – big document was the air force wanted to send it to the condon committee that was going to do this big investigation which eventually enabled the air force to get out of the ufo business you know from their their perspective and uh i kind of think they if they could put that document that she wrote you know in condon's hands it would be like saying see this really isn't the air force's responsibility this is about poltergeists and ghosts and angels and all this other weird stuff. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Don't bother us with this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: This is for a priest yeah, so, somewhere.
2: <laughs> yeah. He, and he was, and she was going to Ivan Sanderson's home uh, because he had all these newspaper clippings going back to the 1940s on UFOs. So she wanted to include and spend a weekend there going through his material to include it in her database. Hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and first thing, uh, what really turned, you know, alerted me about, uh, Keel and, and Lynn Cato having a relationship was I was interviewing, uh, Tim Beckley and he told me, uh, when we got to the subject of that document that she produced, he said, yeah, um, I was up in, um, He was doing a talk at a UFO conference, I think it was Indiana, uh, some years earlier. And he said, in walked uh, Len Cato and John Keel, and they sat together and listened to my talk. (laughs) And uh, so that was what initiated me to start digging further and further. I realized that, and I thought how interesting that they both had similar ideas, the conversations that they must have had, you know. because. they both not only explored the UFO, but the all these other elements that seem to be intertwined uh, with this phenomena.
1: Well, if people go and look at some of those letters on JohnKeel.com as well, you know they'll notice what what seemed to be the temperament at the time and John's sort of uh, guidance of Lynn as to who to maybe trust and who not to. And at the time, it seems like there was an incredible amount of tension. sort of we want to talk about you know uh trickery and the trickster right it seems like there was a lot of trickery coming from within the ufo community and people playing tricks on each other and people maybe playing tricks on john
2: oh yeah yeah uh like ray barker and jim (laughs) mosley right we have the human tricksters yeah yeah and you know jim jim mosley produced that that uh book um uh, what's the title? Something about uh, grave, grave robbing ufologist, because he spent a lot of time in Peru uh, back in the 50s uh, gathering up uh, different artifacts and stuff and getting them to the United States where he could sell them at a profit. Um, but he was also, you know, he also found a photograph while he was in Peru. Of, uh, somebody filmed a, looks like a rocket, but it's going sideways over some trees, (laughs) uh, (laughs) horizontally instead of vertically, um, claimed, you know, they couldn't, they didn't know what it was. Uh, but he, yeah, sadly they did a lot of hoaxing themselves. Um, they had, uh, and often they would be, uh, under the influence of alcohol, at the time they committed a lot of these hoaxes,
4: mm. and
2: and uh, one of them, of course, one of the well-known ones was um, uh, they had written a uh, a letter to George Adamski, um on official government stationery. Uh, I that Greg Barker had a uh, a relative who worked uh, in some I can't remember. Um, what the agency was but it was a prominent government agency mm. and they wrote this letter saying that we know that george adamski his accounts are true and et cetera and so he took this with him wherever he went and uh yeah and then of course the government uh fbi i guess came came knocking on gray barker's door and uh he uh presumably um, got rid of the typewriter that he wrote the letter on. <laughs> <laughs> like a loaded gun or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think Jim Mosley, I think he hinted at something about, uh, there was some place that was uh, a bank or something was being built and the cement was still fresh and, you know, he went there at night. And <laughs>
1: <laughs> what great lengths. Well, it's all the same stuff, isn't it? Like from the beginning of the flying saucer phenomenon, right? It's all been like tricksters in, involved in it. There's all been, there, there've been con men, right? There've been people looking to make money from this stuff right along the side of people trying to understand it all. And and it happens to this day. I mean, to this day, if you go on Twitter, it it's all right there in front of you. You know, people's ideas about this or that and like a heightened level of paranoia that in relationship to the rest of, you know, sort of the, the paranormal community, if you will, um, is heightened, is extreme. And it, that's why I think a lot of us, we do slide back into some of these books from someone like Kiel uh, to, to look at it from a different perspective, away from a lot of the, 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 the hum. And I think it's a great, uh, I don't know, sort of thing that he's contributed to the field of study um, is just providing that space maybe, right?
2: Yeah, and you know, for for years that I've been involved in the field you keep hearing okay, the government is about to release uh, a big disclosure and <laughs> you know, disclosure has been a big part of this, uh, NICAP was real busy with, with disclosure
4: yeah.
2: and uh, you know, it's uh, you know, it's all going to break out soon <laughs> <laughs> the truth is going to be known by everybody, right. and I, you know, I know a lot of people feel that, you know, with the Times, New York Times article, it first came out in 2017, and and I think it is impressive that we have these uh accounts of military people and and uh, the Skinwalker Ranch too, and and mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff validates Keel, but this this thing with the military, I mean, I've been reading reports that were just as impressive. Uh, you know, in the field for years, but it was you know never. Um, it was never a big New York Times story. It was just you know kept within the field, and they would write it in books and things. You'd read these stories and articles. Um, these navy ships run uh, some patrol, and a big saucer went by, or something, or there was, uh, or maybe up <laughs> out by the ocean, or there, you know, or there was um, a military pilot. Uh, Had this you know amazing sighting and all these stories uh, be documented. This has been going on for years and years, but suddenly you know suddenly there's like um, this um, acceptance you know because it's uh, still the general public still sees it uh, as you know an ongoing thing with the uh, the general objects, the physical objects, the nuts and bolts kind of perspective, whereas you know it's gradually getting out there that there's some other strange things going on and of course um got all these documentaries on tv that we didn't have years ago it's yeah ghost and <laughs> we've even got the skinwalker ranch uh you know documentary now yeah um so and i i, I really um uh, I'm interested in, in all the PhD people I see who are like uh, with CCRI, Consciousness Contact Research Institute,
4: mm-hmm.
2: which I, I've worked with some. I worked with FREE, which was the five-year beginning of CCRI, the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Extraordinary Experiences. I was one of those who said, wait a minute, this is an unbiased study. Why are we saying extraterrestrial? So they, they added extraordinary, you know, but hey. They're doing, you know, they did a survey of over 3000 experiences, produced a book in 2018 called Beyond UFOs. I have chapter 13 appropriately enough where I mentioned Keel and all the alternative stuff in there. Are you, you're, you're, in,
1: you're in this giant book,
2: huh? I'm in that giant, yeah, it's a giant book, yeah. <laughs> and I'm in one of the ones that's coming out, uh, I guess, later this month or maybe in June. Uh, Whenever it comes out, Uh, they've got four volumes of CCRI and he's managed, uh, Ray Hernandez has managed to bring together a lot of prominent uh, people from different fields, um, you know, PhDs and so on, academics. Um, I'm one of those that uh, doesn't have a PhD, but uh, they still fact that I've been in this thing so long, they think I got something to contribute. So (laughs) bang, my article, my chapter in this next book is, uh, I don't even remember what they called it, but it's, uh, it's going to be on John Keel, um, and how he influenced the field.
1: Oh, that's amazing.
2: Um, So that's great. um, If,
1: uh, listen, uh, if, if Keel, if Keel picked up a, this tome of, of work beyond UFOs, what do you think? What do you think Keel would think?
2: What do you think you'd think of this work? Well, uh, my was my chapter. I think he'd say, "Okay, yeah, yeah," because I I, I reference Keel quite a bit uh, on his thoughts on marrying apparitions and things, and uh, a lot of other different elements. Um, so uh, I don't think he'd disagree with any of it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, and and we had a pretty good relationship. Um, now sometimes I get a feeling that the the Keel comes through the evp process maybe a little frustrated with me because one time i did this uh this thing with uh, the people i was working with uh brett and sandy and my wife was there and others and uh i said let's play a game um let's uh, let's talk about um i'll say a name of someone and you tell me what you think of them and i thought that'd be interesting knowing how keel I had this acid wit and how he would respond, how there were people he didn't like. So I (laughs) I, I played that card, but see, when I listened to it, now it wasn't really a a great audio, Uh, you know, but he did, you know, seem to respond to a lot of these. And there was one part where, and to me, it sounded like John Keel. And what I heard with the headphones was a voice saying, and what I'd like to say about you. (laughs) (laughs) but you know um yeah uh, people who dealt with keel extensively including doug skinner wrote how even though they were like best of friends he would often uh um say things you know to him and others you know kind of um where it can kind of hurt your feelings at times he sometimes he was uh Really friendly and outgoing. Other times he could be a little moody.
1: Ah, yeah. yeah. Some of the best creatives are like this, I think. <laughs> some of the best. Well, writers. I got
2: I got to interview, uh, you know, uh, Sandra Martin, who used to be uh, uh, Keel's literary agent, along sure. with with other people. And you know, she had her office in New York City, right on the main street, and Keel would come by. Uh, by there and visit with her uh, often on Thursdays, um, and invite her to lunch, which I think she usually paid for. But anyway, <laughs> they would get down the street uh, to this uh, um, Edison Hotel, this old hotel, and down on the main floor uh, there was a group of magician who would get magicians who would gather there on Thursdays and uh he would go in with her and he would introduce you know this is my literary agent and she said after a while it was like you know they know who i am by now (laughs) but you know (laughs) and then he would you know um they'd talk magic and and eat and uh then finally he had um when the maybe it was when the mothman prophecies movie came out he he got some money and he went took her out to eat and he says to the waiter get whatever she wants i've got the money <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh that must have been and
2: victorious he, and she said that uh, there was keel ingo swan and alex emuk in new york city and she said they were fascinating great authors they were brilliant but they were all kind of grumpy <laughs> 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 and she says, I, I think it was really because they, they did all this work, they felt it was important, but they often felt like they were shortchanged, like they really yeah. had been overlooked by a lot of people, you know, that, right. that they, uh, you know, they didn't get the recognition they felt they, they should. Yeah. And she told me that she was uh, she convinced a major publisher to publish uh, a book. Called The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings.
4: Mm.
2: And it turned out uh they, they liked the book and they were going through it. And then they contacted her and said, Do you know that he published the same book back in 1970 called Strange Creatures from Time and Space? <laughs> and so she contacted keely and says, Yeah, but I've uh I've made a few changes, but yeah, that's the same book. Yeah. So anyway, they published it and uh, they made a good profit on it so they were happy <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I said do you think he really changed anything no she said, I think it was such a insane <laughs> <laughs> but he said the cover they had on that book he said it was uh, told her it was the best cover uh, of any of his other books Wow yeah, okay
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's awesome that's so cool. Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I can't believe we've, we've almost been talking for almost two hours here, Brent. Um, I, I usually don't keep people on for this long, but I can't help myself. And so I apologize.
2: <laughs> ah, okay. This Let is my favorite thing more. to talk about. Let me tell you what, Sandra Martin too, is, was is a literary agent. Uh, she also said that, you know, she loved his writings. Uh, she said Keel was one of her favorite authors and, uh, and that one day they got invited to, uh, Ingo Swan's uh, house, actually hmm. basement. He had a place where he could entertain guests. And, um, there was supposed to be, uh, Alex Ema, a parapsychologist from Poland was going to have a guest there who was supposed to be a real powerful psychic.
4: Hmm.
2: And so they went together, uh, her and, uh, Kiel to this event. And, uh, they walked in, they had, a, they had a seating right up front, you know, uh, where they could see everything real clear, be prominently seen themselves. And and uh, and there were news people there too, uh, reporters. Um, and uh, anyway, the guy gets up, some foreign guy, she couldn't remember who it was, but said he, uh, he to her eye, it was an object on this table. Took his hands on each side of the object, raised his hands. With his hands being raised, the object raised up. Wow. And at yeah. which point he poked, uh, Lynn. I mean, uh, he poked Sandra, and said, "We've got to leave now." <laughs> <laughs> and she a "Why?" She says, "Just come." And they went out the door and on the sidewalk. She says, "Okay, John, what's going on?" He said, I can take you down a few blocks to a magic shop and I can have you in about 15 minutes able to perform that same trick. Oh. And I don't want to, be, <laughs> Says, I don't want you and me uh, to end up with our pictures in the paper and uh, having it look like we were endorsing this guy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, she said, and that's the kind of person that Keel was said, you know, uh, he actually was a friend and he, looked out for me, He knew I didn't need bad publicity, he, you know, and he, uh, and then uh, I talked with, you know, I mean, I wrote to Doug Skinner about this and, and Doug Skinner said, yeah, I, uh, I did uh, actually go with John Keel one time when he talked to Alex Emuk and told him to be aware of uh, some of these magicians that will perform what appear to be psychic feats we need to be more familiar with their techniques and things and uh said alex even wasn't didn't seem too happy to be told this by mr keel but uh oh funny um, but you know um and that's uh <laughs> and I know that you know my friend and John keel's friend he, you know the uh, dr Berthold Schwartz I mentioned earlier he uh he was investigating a lot of psychics and some people kind of questioned some of those psychics and and uh, the amazing randy sent out two young men he had been training to perform mm. fake psychic feats and uh, unfortunately dr swartz and a few other parapsychologists ended up with these guys on their doorsteps and uh, and then being you know made to look bad in the media once uh, the amazing randy um uh, had a conference revealing ha ha I tricked you guys. Oh, um, yeah.
1: And what a saga with that guy too. So amazing. Oh
2: yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a uh, he was a trickster.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: right right.
1: Well, uh listen, I appreciate this conversation Brent so much. I know the listeners listeners are very very much going to enjoy it. Uh, where where can you suggest people go to find more of your work?
2: Okay, Alternate Perceptions comes out once a month on the first of each month, and it uh, can be located at the following address. It can be apmagazine.info, and it's Alternate Perceptions. It uh, comes out once a month, and in a few months we'll have actually had 300 issues. That's fantastic. <laughs> and- Thank
1: you so much for collecting. All that information and writing these stories and doing these interviews and it's the real work and it's so appreciated, it really is.
2: Well, Jim, I, I appreciate it uh, and I enjoyed uh, and yeah, the two hours have slipped by very fast.
4: <laughs> very
2: much. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for you know having me and uh, let me let me drone on about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no droning.
1: There's no drones. (laughs) They're just flying saucers here. No drones. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Brett.